Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5 once again this morning. Come to the middle section of Galatians 5. We're spending three weeks studying this wonderful portion of this book of Galatians. It begins with Paul challenging us, encouraging us to walk by the Spirit. And so in order to understand what walking by the Spirit means, and it's an important question to ask, uh, we should follow a few different uh, steps. And the first was followed last week. Who is the Spirit and what does the Spirit do? So we spent all of last week just considering the ministry of the Holy Spirit because it's telling us to walk by the Spirit. So we ought to know who He is, what He does. Now today what we will do is look at the two different combatants, you might say, that are at war, the flesh and the spirit. And this has direct relationship to us in every day that you live. So we'll spend time considering those two combatants. And then next week, more specifically, the actual act of walking by the spirit and seeing the fruits of the spirit realized. Now, we have realized so far in studying Galatians that it is a book about the freedom that the gospel brings. Uh, By faith in Christ, we are indeed free, really free. We're free from the penalty deserved for our sin because Jesus, as our substitute, took that punishment. We are free from the reigning power of sin in our lives. We still struggle with sin, as we see in the passage today, but we're no longer identified solely with our sin. We're no longer completely enslaved to it. We have freedom in that we are not total slaves to the reigning power of sin in our lives any longer. We're also free to love God and to obey Him now in Christ, which also means we're free to love each other, to serve each other where we weren't before. Not for real anyways, not authentically. Now we can. This is also encouraging to consider, but there is an important question that rises in my mind every time I consider this passage and this concept. So before I read it, I want to just say it up front, because I think everyone else has probably had the question, too. Personally, how can I explain the apparent contradiction between my freedom in Christ, the freedom that is so clearly displayed in Scripture? We've been walking through in Galatians. No one could say with any application of logic that you can think of that it does not tell us very clearly that positionally we are the sons and daughters of God by faith in Christ. I think we can show that over and over again in Scripture. That is very apparent to us. But there's a problem. How can I explain the apparent contradiction between my freedom in Christ, which Scripture declares, and my regular sinful failings? I don't mean my occasional sinful failings. I mean my regular sinful failings. How can I explain this contradiction? How can you explain it in your life? How can we explain the apparent contradiction between our freedom and our failings? I think that's exactly why Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is addressing this internal conflict that every child of God deals with. Here, Galatians 5, 16 and following, here as I read these 11 verses once again. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage that so clearly outlines the battle, the internal battle that we deal with as Christians. Lord, I pray that you would give us strength to rest in you when we want to strive so badly to make ourselves more attractive to you. Help us rest in Christ again. Help us to understand this battle. Be honest about it. Help us to confess. Help us to rely upon you. Help us to do this so that you might receive glory. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, how can we explain the apparent contradiction between our freedom and our failings? I'll go one further. Do your sins or your constant struggle with sin and failings, do they cause you to question your salvation? I think they have for me in the past. There's no doubt. How could it be so that I say I trust in Christ, his righteousness becomes my righteousness, I'm supposed to be a new creature in Christ, yet the battle continues to wage, and I fail it often. How could this be so? Maybe I'm not even a Christian, I might think. This used to bother me more. I still struggle with it like everybody does, because you're disgusted with yourself at times, or frustrated. But something that really helped me was reading further in what Paul wrote many years after he wrote the book of Galatians. In the text before us, he alludes to the fact that we are compelled to do things that we don't want to do. He only says it once. But in the book of Romans, he really spells it out in more detailed form. Listen to what he says in the earlier part of the book of Romans, the book he wrote later on in his ministry. He says, I do not understand my own actions. Now, this is the Apostle Paul talking. This is someone who was hyper-religious, even legalistic before, was pretty disciplined, became a Christian. And yet he's saying, I don't understand my own actions, the Apostle Paul says. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. He goes on, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Those are important words from the Apostle that will help us as we understand what we are reading here today. Because what he says is very true. There is nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. What is the flesh? As we need to discover. But he also says that I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's true, too. You can't carry it out on your own. You see, it's not just that, and I think this is a big challenge for Christians. It's not just that God gave us enough grace to save us, to make us believe. Most will confess that. That's amazing grace. 
But what we want to do is take back control right after that point and say, okay, God did that. Now it's my turn to respond. And then I'm going to be the one that sanctifies myself. I'm saved by grace. Now I'm acceptable to God. And now I must go forth and provide the energy, the ability, the effort to keep in that state. And what Paul's saying is I struggle with every every day. I can't do the things I want to do that I know I should do. And I have no ability in myself to do it. What he's saying is that not only do we need and require God's grace, his sovereign grace to save us in the first place, we absolutely need it every millisecond after that to keep us and to sanctify us. It's all God's grace, which gives him all the glory. That's the bedrock and foundation of seeing sin defeated in our lives. We see that this concept of walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, this helps us to see sin defeated. But we have to understand, that's what I hope we do this morning, we have to be cognizant of the seriousness of the internal conflict that you will experience if you're a believer. Look at verse 17 of our text. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. They're not just sort of opposed to or not exactly aligned with. They are against the Spirit. So the flesh opposes the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. He says against, against, twice, opposed, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, this should give you encouragement from the beginning. He's talking to believers. Only people who are born again by the Spirit of God, given a new heart, a new set of affections, will want to do God's will for His glory. That's what you want if you're in Christ. Now, that will create conflict for you because it will battle against your old center of focus, which is self, and gratifying self and bringing glory to self. Now you want to bring glory to God because you've been born again. You've been regenerated. The problem is what you want to do will be warred against by the flesh, your old center. And that's the battle that is being relayed here. And I think it will help us in the second part of this study to outline the battle clearly, what the flesh is, what the spirit is, where they come from, what their traits are, what their purpose is, so that we might understand what walking by the spirit then means. Now, think of the way we would size up two combatants today in our age. In fact, from about 1900 to 1970, boxing was probably one of those analogous sports to culture and life. It gave people, especially those in more oppressed backgrounds, a ways in which they could pin their hopes on one individual to represent them. And I know growing up that I used to watch uh, videotape after videotape that my dad had of all the old Italian fighters. Because we were proud as Sicilian Americans of our representative boxers, Marciano, Graziano, later Boom Boom Mancini. That's a point of pride for us, and I'm not ashamed to say it. So we'd watch the tapes over and over and over again. And I remember the discussion would happen from time to time with Dad and I or with others uh, who, were, who were not of Sicilian-American descent. And they would talk about the greatest heavyweights of all time. And they'd say Muhammad Ali. And they'd talk about Jack Dempsey and Joe Lewis. And we'd be just kind of be quiet. And we're like, yeah, I, yeah, okay. Well, I do know this. Marciano fought 49 times. He knocked out 43 people. He never lost. And then they would respond, yeah, well, but... He's only five foot ten and just a little over 200, and he only fought 49 times. And they'll point out that Muhammad Ali, who a lot of people want to say is the greatest ever, which we know who he is not. It was obviously Marciano. He was 6'3", 230 pounds. He fought 61 times, but immediately my response is, yeah, 
but he lost five times. How many did Marciano lose again? None. So let's compare, and we would compare, and it's fun, because there's different eras, it's impossible to really compare them. We do it with baseball teams, we do it with different... We want to know what it would be like if those two battle each other. When we do a tale of the tape, we try to look at what they had as uh, their assets and what they had as their liabilities and what would it look like if they would have battled each other. And you wonder, well, there's a sense in which we can do an inventory of the flesh and the spirit, and it will help you right now understand what's going on in your own heart and life. And it will also, I think, give you encouragement about what the outcome will be. So let's consider the text as a tale of the tape. Let's look at the two opponents. First, the flesh. Look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And he lists 15 different works or traits of the flesh. It even caps it all off by singing in things like these. So we see the identity of the flesh first. And that is, very simply, our sinful nature. Uh, The flesh is a reference to our fallen nature, you might say. Some might even use the term still our old man. Human nature, very generally speaking, the flesh, human nature is fallen and sinful. It's bent towards sin. It is not accurate, no matter how much Oprah says or Dr. Phil says or anyone else that man is basically good. Not true. Human nature is fallen. Everybody's fallen. Christians, we have a fallen nature as our sinful flesh still. The the difference is, is that the Christian has been born again and, and he's been redeemed or she's been redeemed and now the our center of our affection has been changed and our nature is being changed and we're different where there's something different because there's now a power over that sinful nature but humanity in general apart from the redemptive work of christ and application thereof is fallen and we're bent towards sin that's what we do all our parts are disturbed by this it doesn't mean that we are always as evil as we could ever be in every bit of us but it does mean that every part of you your intellect your mind your will your all the things that we say are parts of the person however you want to divide it is affected by the fall the origin of this but we're all sinful in our nature bent towards self and the main key here is a love for self a focus on self a taking of the glory that is due to god for self so identity the flesh that we're talking about is our sinful nature prone to to sin where is what is the origin of this to help us understand the flesh well very specifically the origin of the sinful flesh comes from our first parents when they were tempted by the devil who himself fell from glory by trying to rob god's glory he was cast out out of heaven and cast down to hell and he in turn tries to make man grab some of the glory for himself by saying you can do what god told you not to do You could be like him if you do. You can have some of his glory. So Satan, with the same thing he fell by, convinces man to fall by it. Man falls, and every person from that time has been fallen and bent on worshiping self and stealing glory from God. That's what we want to do, ultimately. That's what the ultimate definition of selfishness is, is to take for self what is due to God, his glory. So the origin comes from this original fall, and it's been perpetuating ever since. No one escapes this. Everybody, by virtue of our first parents, is born in sin, conceived in iniquity. That's the fact of it. What are the traits of the sinful flesh? If we just would just describe it in raw terms, the sinful flesh, unchecked, would look like this. And he lists 15 different things. Look what they say, what, what different uh, designations are given. Sexual immorality. Now, be clear, that, does, that basic definition of that, of the word porneia there, is any sexual activity 
or practice that is outside of God's prescribed place for that, which is marriage, and I have to say nowadays, between a man and a woman. That's anything outside of that is sexual immorality. It doesn't matter what it is. Impurity. Be all sorts of unclean things. Sensuality. The senses, the senses that we have, things that we can taste, touch, feel, handle, that kind of stuff that can take us over, that we, we could idolize those things. Sensuality in that sense. Idolatry could be one of the things that the sinful flesh drives us towards. Worshipping something other than God. Sorcery. To go to something else as a power source. Something else that we would seek revelation from or assistance from other than God. It's really what is meant by this. And then look at the other relational sins that come forth from our sinful flesh. If our sinful flesh is bent on self, focused on self, centered on self, seeking to gratify self, it will create inevitably enmity between people. Division between us. Strife will be striving. Jealousy will occur. We're jealous about what someone else has. Fits of anger will ensue when we can't have what they have. Rivalries between people. Dissensions. Divisions. And listen, every one of us can picture this in children from the earliest of ages. You don't teach your children. No one here has taught them to pick at their brother or sister. No one's ever, be envious of your, of your brother's toys or your sister's toys. No one's ever told their kids, you know, really strive for strife and, and pick at them. When no one's looking, kick them. No parents ever told you any of your children that, right? That's the sinful nature that we have that shows itself from the earliest time. The only difference, by the way, between the little kid who's kicking their brother or sister and the parents aren't looking and the person in the office who's driving strife behind the scenes is just a few more years and a little more polish. But it's the same sinful nature, the same strife. Even in Christian circles where the Holy Spirit works and preserves, it's remarkable to see how certain people just love antagonism. They just love, they don't like to see peace. And they drive a wedge. This is the work of the flesh. Because somehow, ultimately, in their mind, it will somehow set themselves up a little higher than everybody else. That's why we do it. Dissensions, divisions, envy. Then it goes into excesses with things, all things that God may give us good gifts, like in the earlier portion of this list, and then now drunkenness, orgies, which doesn't always have just sexual reference. It refers also uh, to food and to gluttony in that respect. It also, in verse 26, there's more reference to the works of the flesh, conceit, provoking, envying, spiritual haughtiness or thinking of ourselves as so much greater than others. This is the trait or the description of the work of the flesh in our lives. And I want to be clear that the Spirit of God works to mitigate this even in totally unbelieving communities because if it would run completely amok, it would be just like that book, The Lord of the Flies. Do you remember that book? I remember reading it and thinking uh, when these kids had the plane wreck and they're on this island and what would happen if this occurred? And the, the author kind of drives home the idea that we would descend into like savagery. You know, by, the, by just weeks you have the, them worshiping a pig's head on a stake and fighting and actually killing one another. That's a true depiction of what it would look like if there were none of God's preserving grace given. Only because of God's preserving grace and redeeming grace in the community of faith do we have some kind of restraint to this sinful flesh that we have. What's the purpose of the flesh? We're considering that combatant. Ultimately, the purpose of the sinful flesh is to gratify its own desires. And it's insatiable. You think you can quench it, but you can't. 
It says, give me, you know, I want more. You give it more and it wants more still. The purpose of self is found in the intentions of Satan. That's the same thing Satan wanted. And ultimately, he's the one who tempted in the garden to rob God of his glory. And if you're caught up in some sin, that's a time in which you're unable to give any glory to God and you can't love anyone else but yourself. It works insidiously, but it also works up front and openly. The purpose of sinful flesh is to center on self, focus on self. Be selfish, show as not to love God, not love others, and to in fact offend God and exploit others. That's the ultimate outcome of the sinful flesh working. That has in fact been crucified without a doubt. But there is a vestige of the sinful flesh that absolutely still remains. Otherwise, Paul would not say what he says here or in Romans. We would not experience what we all know to be true. And you're probably dealing with right now this battle that's going on with some particular thing or things. But now we have the Spirit. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Here is the other combatant at work in this internal struggle. And we'll consider the fruit of the Spirit more fully next week when we conclude this portion of Galatians. But for now, consider the other combatant. We've considered the flesh, the identity of the Spirit. This is not the other half of us. This is not the good side versus the bad side of us. The little devil on the shoulder, the little angel on the other shoulder. That's not what this is. This is the sinful flesh against God. That's who we're talking about. So before we get too depressed about the traits of the sinful flesh, which are depressing, recognize who is opposing them. It's God, not you. God, that's the battle. It's God's work in you. And the battle's going on, and you're in the throes of it, but it's God versus sinful flesh. Now, who's going to win that? I promise you it will be God. It will be God. God's going to win. I don't know where you are right now and what it feels like for you, but God's going to win. He's going to sanctify you. He will do it. I used to think I'd just get up here and really just unpack every one of these terrible vices and really make you feel guilty for it. And then tell you, you know what? You need to be, have self-control. You need to have patience. You ought to be more kind. That's not what this is saying. If it's the Spirit of God against the flesh, the Spirit of God must do this for you. Must do it in your life. What I can tell you is it will be painful, but it will also be glorious, and it will ultimately reverse the trend of self-worship and glory on self, and it will turn it to the glory of God, because only God could take me and clean me up and bring me to heaven. That's the work of the Spirit in my life, in your life, and He will do it. Because this is not much of a contest when you really consider it. God versus a sinful flesh? He can take care of it, and he will. What is the origin? The Spirit. God himself, there is no origin. He always has been. The origin of the Spirit's battle for the sanctification of you is the plan of God to bring glory to himself. By cleaning up people who were previously in iniquity, he brings glory to himself. Salvation and redemption is not about saving us from hell. It's about bringing glory to himself. And praise God, we're saved from hell. It's all of God's work, all of his grace, and hence all of his glory. 
What are the traits of the Spirit who's battling the sinful flesh that we are dealing with? Well, He created everything. Breathed new life into us. Made us born again. Continues to convict us according to His Word. Gives us remembrance of the Word of God. Preserves us till the day of our ultimate redemption. And the Holy Spirit at work in our life will manifest fruits that are true only of God. Love, ultimately, real love, not the fake kind of superficial love you hear on TV and talk about today, oh, I love you. It's a love that's committed and committed to in the ultimate sense, to give His own Son. Love, joy that comes from this right relationship. Peace that is also a byproduct of this. And this will in turn give us that new patience for what happens. A waiting on God. A kindness towards others as we have been shown such great kindness that we don't deserve. A goodness that is so necessary. Faithfulness that is trustworthiness you can count on. Loyalty. A gentleness that considers every person and what they need at that moment. Self-control, which would help us with so many of these things that we struggle with and battle against. What's the purpose of the Spirit? Know the purpose of the flesh and the purpose of the Spirit now. The purpose of the Spirit is to sanctify us according to our new identity in Christ. To make us actually experience what is true positionally. True is positional, positionally, we are right with God through Christ. The Spirit helps us experience that position. To actually be able to say, Abba, Father. To sense the fatherhood of God as His children. The Spirit does that. Spirit's purpose is to mature us so that we might bring an ever-increasing glory to God through changed lives. To make our confidence to be utterly in Christ as we mature. And you know what? It's not as we mature we get more confident in our becoming more righteous. It's not that at all. It's actually quite the opposite. As we mature, we become more in tune with the fact that we need grace and we don't become conceited or provoking one another, but more humble because we recognize how much we don't deserve this. That's actual maturity. It's the opposite of what we normally think. Whoa, I don't sin as much. No. You probably sin just as much. You're just, God's so gracious, He doesn't tell you it all at once. Because enough of a recognition that it's all of God's grace that you grow in humility and brokenness before God, a broken and contrite heart God will never despise because it's one who's humble and in our call to worship. When we read it at the very beginning, it says, let the godly exalt in glory, let them sing for joy on their beds, let the high praises of God be in their throats. The humble, the humble he adorns with salvation. It doesn't mean just being falsely humble, it means the one who recognizes only God can save them. That's maturity, and the Spirit of God does that. You grow in grace as you grow, and you become more grateful for grace. And the Spirit gives us an actual sense of assurance, security, peace, joy. And just like Paul wrote to the Corinthians, a church that needed to hear it, just like we do, he said, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Talking freedom positionally is not the same thing as the Spirit of God making us sense that freedom. What's the battle about? And this is what we'll spend the majority of our time on next week. But I do want to say this, that we have the spirit against the flesh. The spirit is superior and will win. But there's a battle that goes on, and I'm not minimizing it at all. It's real. In this life, there will always be a struggle, this process from justification through sanctification to ultimate glorification. That process in the middle where we are now, which seems so long to us, but it's not, and it as it relates to eternity, how long are these 70, 80 years? They're pretty short. But to us right now, this is where we live, and it's real, and it hurts. It's a battle. And so he helps us with this battle by telling us the nature of it, and this is why we study it. And it caused John Stott, who's in his 80s now and has lived a life walking with Christ, to see these things. Listen to what he says. He says, what takes place 
within our hearts, mind, soul, and body, is nothing less than a civil war, a violent confrontation between opposing forces and irreconcilable antagonism. But as we notice that what we're talking about ultimately is God versus man, God will win, and it should give us assurance that he is not nearly done with you. In whatever you're facing now and how down you feel about it, it's God's working in you that will reveal and work the fruits of the Spirit in your life. It's just his work. It's what he'll do. God will win this. We are new creations. Remember what it says in 5 verse 17, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What you want to do now in Christ is what is according to your new affection, your new focus, the glory of God, no longer the glory of self. But what about verse 21? That's so heavy. It seems to be saying that if you do certain things, you'll lose it. Look at verse 21. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we have to take this in its overall context because you can see throughout the Scripture the honest writings of David to Paul to the various apostles speaking of their own personal problems with sin. They sin. No one but Christ is sinless. So it cannot mean that when you fall into one of these sins, you have an incident of falling into one of these sins or struggle with one of these sins, that that means you won't inherit the kingdom of God. It's saying that someone who is in the present commitment to such a sin, and the word is present and ongoing, and they're habitually committed to or enslaved to one of these sins, that definition of them, that's the one you could say is not going to inherit the kingdom. In other words, that is one who's not rightly related to God by faith in Christ. There's several reasons why we would say this. The tense of the word itself speaks of a habitual action, an ongoing activity, not an occasional lapse into the sins of the flesh that we all experience, or even the constant struggle you may have with a particular sin. Are you struggling with it? Are you repenting of it? Are you asking God to help you? That's a sign of repentance God gives. That's not the person who's saying, I've got this, I'm going to do it. Because I go to church, I give my money and I do certain things, I can keep this sin. That's the person that ought to be seriously concerned because the new heart will evidence a different attitude towards sin. It's really about identifying whether there is a saving faith or not based on what a person is doing. Is an inward reality showing itself outwardly? This is a constant theme through the apostles. But notice also it says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. How do you get an inheritance? Do you earn an inheritance? Not in a purely legal sense you don't. An inheritance is a gift given to you based on something someone else earned. So just the use of inheritance here shows us it's not a matter of you doing something to lose it or doing something to gain it, but rather doing something will evidence whether something's true or not, whether you are in line for that inheritance or not. Because if you are, certain things will be manifested. The struggle will be engaged upon. The struggle itself is one of the great indicators of the work of the Spirit in your life. I remember as a young person, it was liberating to me to hear a pastor say, as I was struggling with sin like everybody does, and I remember thinking, how can I be a believer? These same questions I'm asking this morning, I'm sure some here are asking. And I remember the pastor saying that he struggled with the same thing growing up, and he realized that when another preacher told him that if you're even concerned with this and you're struggling with this, that's an indication that there's a battle going on, and the battle only goes on in someone who has the Spirit of God working against the flesh. There's a reference back to earlier in 524. 
And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. That reminds me of what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's what he says again, almost same words. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions. But as I realize, it's not that he just killed it, like beheaded it. He crucified it, which means a process of killing before certain death occurs. It's a painful process in a great description of what happens to our sinful flesh. It's crucified, but that is not something that happens easily or painlessly. It's a terrible, tough process. So when we come to walking by the Spirit, let us recognize what is being engaged upon. In walking by the Spirit itself, is the term that was used in the ancient Greek, among the ancient Greeks, that would describe a teacher who would walk along with his or her student and teach them as they went. And I have a good friend of mine whose father, every time he comes home, his father takes him for a walk around the neighborhood and he talks to him. He probably lectures him a little bit, asks him how his life is going. They interchange. They've been doing this since he was a teenager and he's uh, almost 40 now and he still, every time he sees his dad, let's go for a walk and that means we're going to talk. We're going to counsel together. That's what walking by the Spirit means. That's what we're talking about here. That's what we'll discover. Walking by the Spirit. It says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the victory that will come ultimately, even when we feel beat down. Lord, I pray for those who may feel hopeless today, brothers and sisters who do trust in Christ, but are struggling with sin. Pray, O God, that you would open their eyes to see this battle that you are waging on their behalf. And I pray that they would once again rest in Christ and his work, rest in what you are doing, and see victory in their life over these things. Lord, we are not praying for comfort in our sin, but we're praying for deliverance from it. And we ask this according to Christ who has purchased it for us. Amen.